Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. This is the Read to Lead podcast, episode 350. I find that I have learned the most from actually running into problems. And that's been the big learning points have been have been mistakes. If you can live through them and recover from them, they're better teachers than success. Hi, and welcome to the Read to Lead podcast. I am Jeff, and this is the podcast that's dedicated to your personal and professional growth. The richest and most successful people in the world have read themselves to riches and great rewards, often starting with little or nothing, and so can you. Each week, we sit down with the author of a book I've deemed to be pretty darn good, and we chat about their book's key insights and main ideas. Today, we'll be joined by Robert Rosenberg as we dive into his new book, Around the Corner to Around the World, A Dozen Lessons I Learned Running Dunkin' Donuts. Yeah, that Dunkin' Donuts. I'll ask Robert to share about the four must-dos of an effective CEO, why mistakes are a better teacher than success, why the mindset of innovate, test, and iterate served Duncan so well, and much, much more. You know, something I shared just a moment ago is actually a partial quote from best-selling author and Read to Lead podcast guest, Brian Tracy. He's read the manuscript from my upcoming book written with Jesse Wisniewski, and Brian was asked to consider an endorsement for the book coming out in August, and this is what he wrote. This extraordinary book will change your life, unlock your potential, and enable you to achieve any goal you can set for yourself. The richest and most successful people in the world have read themselves to riches and great rewards, often starting with little or nothing, and so can you. Needless to say, I was pretty excited when I saw that endorsement in my email inbox literally just moments ago. I want you to be able to get your hands on this book. I think it will serve you quite well. And though it doesn't publish until August 31st of 2021, you can actually pre-order it on Amazon right now. So let me just humbly ask you, if the Read to Lead podcast has provided value to you these last seven plus years, would you consider pre-ordering a copy of the book? You can do that by simply going to readtoleadpodcast.com slash book. That's readtoleadpodcast.com slash book, or simply go to Amazon and search Read to Lead. By the way, the book is called Read to Lead, The Simple Habit That Expands Your Influence and Boosts Your Career. And thanks in advance. Robert Rosenberg, who has promised I can call him Bob, uh, served as uh, chief executive officer of Dunkin' Donuts from 1963 until his retirement in 1998. And under his leadership, uh, the company grew from a regional family business to one of America's best known and loved brands. Uh, He received his MBA from Harvard Business School. And just weeks after graduating, which we'll talk about in just a moment, at the age of 25, assumed the position of CEO. Now, after retiring from Duncan, he taught at the graduate school at Babson College and served many years on the boards 
of directors of other leading food service companies, including Domino's Pizza and Sonic restaurants. Uh, he's here today to share some of the many lessons he learned running that Dunkin' Donuts company we love so much. Uh, his book is called Around the Corner to Around the World, A Dozen Lessons I Learned Running Dunkin' Donuts. Bob, welcome officially to the Read to Lead podcast. I'm excited to have you here. Thanks, Jeff. My pleasure. I'm excited to be here. I found this book, uh, in a word, delightful. I started reading it uh, just a couple of days ago and could not put it down. I just wanted to, to go through it as quickly as I possibly could. I'm so glad you took the, the time to write it. And I wanted to start out with a story that you tell early in the book, yeah, and we just alluded to it a moment ago. You're 25, you're just out of business school, and your father asks you to take over the family business. Uh, what, what were those next few weeks like for you as you kind of mulled over that decision. Uh, what, what was the process? <laughs> yeah, it was a breathtaking moment. I, I had uh, worked in the family business uh, as a kid all all along. I'd gone to hotel school and I worked in the business afterwards and then went into the army and then went, went to graduate school. So I expected to join the family business, but never as CEO and, <laughs> and worked fully at 25. I really wasn't prepared to be a CEO. But, you know, sometimes in life, my father was 47, a healthy guy. Eighth grade educated, but his business was growing, and he really wasn't. I don't think uh, had his arms around it to, to scale, and he was running into some problems. And he turned to me, and you know, choices come in life all the time, and so that's we are make we are our choices. And so, what can we learn from from the choice I had to make at twenty five? I, I think there were two elements that sort of helped me. One was take you back a little bit, the ability to have worked in the family business, so I knew my trade. I, I'm a believer in sort of the 80-20 principle and also Malcolm Gladwell's 10,000 hours that sort of success in any field really requires like three to five years of apprenticeship. Mm. You really got to learn your trade. Not everybody, but 80-20 maybe in terms of how people are successful. So I certainly wasn't prepared to be a CEO, but I did know the restaurant industry. I had worked in the cafeterias and the commissaries and the bakery. I ran donut shops in the summers. I pushed vending carts uh, um, through, through factories. I made 1,000 pizzas on a Sunday in one of his businesses, the Leaning Tower of Pizza. So I had a lot of different experiences. So I did know the business. Second of all, I took six weeks to, to sort of nose around to see if, in fact, <laughs> some of my hunches that I had formed while in business school really would were borne out and that maybe the problem with the company lay in its strategy in terms of what it wanted to be. The company he asked me to take over was not called Dunkin' Donuts. It was called Universal Food Systems. It was eight small businesses. And there was a vending machine company and a cafeteria company and a pancake house and 18 or 15 to 20 um, hamburger stands, a la McDonald's and, and on and on. And one of the businesses were these donut shops. When I went away to college, there were five. And when I came back, there were close to 100. But the management that he had left there, he had hired an executive vice president to try to run the business. Uh, they had lost confidence in the business. So they were all different sizes, all different menus, some serving scrambled eggs for breakfast, some serving hot dogs and hamburgers, non-differentiated, the Dunkin' Donut business. And I had a hunch while in school that maybe the problem lay in the fact that Young businesses can die from starvation in terms of not enough capital or personnel to run them, but they can also die from indigestion, too much on their plate. Mm. 
And that's when, in fact, I thought the company was suffering from. And I took six weeks to look around to see if, in fact, that was the source and whether or not I could straighten it out. And uh, my father had tried to sell the business while I was in, in business school my second year. He wanted to be a millionaire after taxes. And he was also concerned that his brother-in-law, his former partner, had taken the money when the partnership broke in 1955 and started a competing chain called Mr. Donut. And they were about to overtake Dunkin' Donuts in that field. And it was mm-hmm. causing my father untold misery. So could I keep the company from being sold? And could I straighten it out? And could I make my dad happy? And mm-hmm. And, and feel the problems that he was experiencing. And ultimately, in six weeks, I thought I, I had a chance at doing that. And those were the two things that I said I was prepared by knowing my trade. And I also did study to get as many facts as I could in order to make this decision. Well, Bob breaks up the book into six eras uh, spanning his time at Dunkin' Donuts. That first era from 63 to 68 was idyllic, was, 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 was peaceful. What were some of the main lessons you learned from those first few years at the helm, would you say? What I learned there, and unfortunately I forgot in the second five-year era, which we'll talk about later, but, but basically... Uh, uh, the importance of strategy and the importance of organization. Uh, I really tell each of the errors through the lens of what I think after a lot of reflection, looking mm-hmm. backwards, were the four functions of, of a CEO. First one is the shepherd strategy. And second is to recruit, retain, and, and motivate an organization to implement the strategy. And those were the f- things that luckily uh, seemed to work out well in the first five-year time period. When we really focused or niched down, as some people would say, and we sold off the other businesses and focused on the gem in our midst, this this uh, 100-store chain, and really fixed it up, standardized the menu, standardized the store design, standardized the products that were going to be sold, focused on certain markets. We weren't going to go any, everywhere and anywhere franchisees wanted to open a store, but where we could build brand. Mm. That we really started to launch $100,000 pre-tax profits, uh, grew quickly in five years to $800,000 in, in profits, and we were able to go public and equitize my father's uh, holdings in the company. And the second thing was my ability to recruit friends of mine out of business school. People had left and gone to work. In those days, everybody either went to work for a consulting firm or, or an investment bank. Mm. And my friends went to work at Goldman and uh, luckily was able to recruit out of Goldman. One of my best friends and classmates to be CFO. And he in turn recruited another fellow a year behind us at business school out of Goldman to come in and head up some administrative functions within the company. So the two things that I got right were where the strategy was on target, much better than what existed before, and the organization started to firm up and, and bring in some people who really punched way above our weight in terms of size. You alluded a moment ago to that next era, which uh, is in the book called The Fall from Grace. Talk about what went wrong in your view, Bob, with regard to mission and objectives. I basically got seduced um, by... Wall Street. We went public, and in those years, in 68 or so, uh, we were the third to go public after McDonald's, Kentucky Fried Chicken, and Duncan was the third. We were akin to what would be considered to be the kind of go-go era of the high-tech companies in in that era. So I was sitting there with a company. My dad couldn't get a million and a half dollars in 1963. By 1968, I was sitting on a company that was selling at 60 times earnings and now worth 150 to $200 million in market cap. And it was intoxicating. We had grown earnings at 50% compounded. And uh, as a 30-year-old, I didn't realize you can't keep doing that. <laughs> so so I kept trying to grow at 50%. I changed the mission from a focused coffee and donut company to be a, a number of portfolio of franchise businesses. And I began to embark on that. And that started the fault of the momentum we had, took our eye off the 
the ball, way overextended the management team, pushed it far too wide, and earnings started to level up. And ultimately, in 73, we lost money, and the board was about fed up with me mm. and, and fired me. <laughs> Luckily, uh, we had discovered the error of our ways, particularly me. I had come to a realization of what was wrong and what I had to do to fix it before uh, the moment came where the board had had it. And I was able to convince them to give us another quarter and we'll come back and revisit the question of leadership again. And luckily, we never had to do that. We had already, and I knew that we had fixed the problem mm. and we're well on our way to success. But basically, we got rid of the other businesses, refocused back, and determined a much more achievable uh, rate of objectives, 10 to 15% growth in earnings per share rather than 50% compounded, much more achievable. And uh, we went back to focus back on being the preeminent donut and coffee company in each market we elected to compete in which was our original mission. Mm. And that was a lesson I we don't think we ever forgot. And we quite truthfully never looked back after that in the next four eras that, that came after that. One of the things I appreciate about what you're saying now, and of course, uh, the content of the book itself is the transparency and the willingness to take a step back and look where maybe mistakes were made. And you admit to a bit of hubris leading up to this fall from grace time in the book. I couldn't help but chuckle. And you look back on it, I think, with a bit of a, a chuckle yourself now when you would go out early on and decide whether to give a thumbs up or thumbs down to a potential new location. Talk about your decision-making process way back when. What, what did that look like? It was all part of the, the same thing. When you came, I came out of school, I guess I was cocky. I wasn't aware of it. And it wasn't until we ran into these problems that I really came to understand the notion of humility mm. and the willingness to take 100% responsibility. And the fact that when people are following you, you've got to be much more thoughtful and, and clear about what you do. And with respect to real estate, I thought that you know it was a 20-year commitment and I should look at every single location. So I would sort of parachute into a city. The development manager would pick me up in a car. We'd drive around. I sort of sniff the air, get out on the street corner, look at the store, and I'd either give a thumbs up or thumbs down as if God had given me this sort of this extraordinary power. And it was only when I was traveling to one of these cities, I was reading a book called Studs Lonigan by James Farrell about the right side and the wrong side of the tracks. And it dawned on me that here I was getting up every Tuesday, traveling until every Thursday night from early morning to late at night, looking at locations, passing judgment, and I had no data and that there was a, a, a right side in Massachusetts and Boston, where I'm from. There was a right side of the 128 and a wrong side of 495. There were in every city in San, San Antonio, there were 100. And that I had no idea where I was. And there must be a better way to collect data and make this based upon much more rational information about who lives within a one, three, five mile radius within a 10 minute drive time and what, what their disposable income is. Are, are there correlations and regressions mm. that would allow you to make better decisions? And then, and so, <laughs> but it was an, a reflective of a lot of my thinking. I was shooting from the hip, and I realized when I was leading people in the wrong direction that that had to stop. And that as the company grew, we needed policies and procedures, a better board, more feedback, more input from the front lines, the franchise owners on the front. And we just did a 180 in terms of sort of leaving that naive 25-year-old head behind and trying to put a smarter 35-year-old head in charge. And uh, <laughs> that was transformative for me. And uh, that too came from a book that came from reading David Halberstam's The Best and the Brightest. And he talked about uh, the Kennedy and Johnson's administration suffering from hubris, the Greek word for arrogance. And boy, that applied to me in spades. And luckily, I was able to see that and sort of grow up as a result of it. 
Well, eventually you were able to come out on the other side of that, uh, the next phase of your reign, if you will, called the uh, resurrection in the book. What did you learn about the tasks and character, Bob, of an effective CEO? First of all, there are certain functions that are absolutely essential. Every day, a thousand things come in over the transom. And if you allow mm. those to dictate your agenda, your schedule, you know, you really could be giving short shrift to the things that are really important. So slowly but surely, I came to realize that there are really four functions for CEO that are must-dos, that, mm. that aren't nice-to-haves but are essential. And if you get those wrong, probably everything else that follows afterwards is wrong. The first was you are really shepherd of the strategy with the senior management team. What do you want to be? What do you want to have? What four or five sort of strategic levers you're willing to pull to bridge scarce resources, the achievement of your objectives? Very critical, the ability to define reality, know the competition, know the customer, know technology. That's why it was five or six areas. Each one had a change in customer competition, and technology required a different response. Mm. So it required constant planning. Second was to recruit, retain, and motivate a, an organization to implement that strategy. It takes a lot of time. And if you don't get the first two right, almost nothing after that will ever work out. You will never be able to achieve success. The third was communications, which is basically the ability to align everybody behind the strategy. And that takes time and repeating and constant traveling in the field, traveling with district managers, talking to franchise owners, meetings, and every touch point at all. Generally speaking, well, I put it down on paper or I, I said it once, but people are so busy with their lives, they're mm. preoccupied, they don't get it or hear it or absorb it. Oftentimes, until you really have to make sure you repeat, what is the message? Do you subscribe to it? If you don't, what are the problems you see with it? Are you on board? If not, why not? What can we do to re reconcile that? I mean, those kind of deep, intensive conversations constantly. And the last function, the fourth one that I tell each of the heirs through, is sort of uh, handling crisis. It always comes. I can't help it. Stuff happens. And, and you have to be prepared to deal with it. And in the case of the 35 years I was there, it probably came with existential threats to the very existence of the business maybe three or four times critically. So you have to be prepared how to handle that as well, too. So those are the things I began to start to come away with after putting my hand on the fire of understanding what can happen if you get the first thing wrong, the wrong strategy. And uh, luckily, uh, we didn't do that again. I appreciated, too, what you had to share and learned from Fernando Flores about trust and, and how we as, as humans create ourselves in language, I think was the way you put it. Talk a bit about uh, what you took away from, from that relationship. I, I kept attending seminars and, and um, readings and colleagues. And generally speaking, I find that in those kinds of things, you, you come away with sort of two or three nuggets of things that generally you're wrestling with at that moment in time. So when I got exposed through my sister-in-law, who was a teacher for Fernando Flores, who was a former Chilean minister of finance and then ultimately a specialist in linguistics at, I think, University of California at Berkeley, he, he basically uh, maintains that, and I agree, trust is at the basis of all relationships. Uh, it, it exists in all successful ones, and it is absent in every unsuccessful one. So you're, you're constantly you're building trust either with customers, with uh, colleagues, uh, family. It, it's, it's in every part of your life, you know, elements of trust. Uh, trust given too soon, you're naive, and withheld too long, you run the risk of being a cynic. And he provided four tests to determine whether or not you yourself are conducting yourself in a trustworthy way and also a way to measure that trust in others. And the four are very simply, sincerity is the first, 
Your public and private conversations are the same. Second is competence. Competence is not the same as never making a mistake. You make mistakes, but you're able to live up to the standards of the job. So I would say oftentimes, you know, Ted Williams was the best hitter in baseball. He only hit 400. He didn't bet 1,000. CEO, my responsibility was to, to, to build a brand, to deliver the earnings I had promised, to be able to provide fair returns to franchise owners. In other words, on the big things out along the way, and we basically tried a lot of stuff. Much of it uh, didn't work out well. And that's not to say I didn't make mistakes, because I did. I don't mean in any way to lead anybody to believe it wasn't lumpy. Life is lumpy, but that's competence. And the third is is reliability. You make promises and you keep your promises. And if things occur that you can't keep, you make new promises and new offers and try to get new agreements and conditions of satisfaction. The last is care. Care is dealing with people in a way that you have a concern for their identity, for their well-being, that you're not treating them as a transaction or what can you do for me, but you are really concerned not only about you know, your own objectives, but those are the individual and that you're trying to work in partnership together to try to achieve your end results. And people get that. They get whether or not you truly care or you're just an act. And those are the four tests that Fernando put out that I got through his courses and classes and readings. And I, I, I found them to be very, very effective and at the heart of every single relationship. Uh, and I think customers make decisions about the brands they trust the same way as do the colleagues that you that you share business with and people in your lives, your family, uh, the same thing. Another thing that stuck out to me, Bob, was the care given in the relationship with with your many franchisees. You've long been, I think, a sold out believer in the concept of franchising. What are franchises a major advantages in your view? I love the franchise system at distribution. It's not as well understood among people as it should be. Those would-be entrepreneurs who are considering a business should really look at franchising. It's not only a way to prove a standard of living for you and your family and reduce risk dramatically. It also can be a pathway to huge wealth creation. There are some franchisees in some systems, including Duncan, I'm proud to say, where people have networks of 100 stores, 200 stores, and uh, you know are, are multimillionaires many times over. But fundamentally, from the company's point of view, you take on board partners, business people who are interested of skin in the game, who can execute your concept on a day-to-day level of that last three feet of the sale much better oftentimes than, than paid employees. They, they, they have their future at stake, their family's future at stake. They also can sometimes provide some capital and some know-how. They also are a great source of huge uh, information. Some of our best product ideas, many of our best ideas, and many of the task forces we have to reform our business over the years have come from franchise owners who are on the front lines day in and day out at the sharp end of the stick. From the franchisee's point of view, you basically dramatically reduce the, the likelihood of, of failure. Someone said as many as 80% of all new businesses fail within five years. Well, franchising's rate of success is dramatically below that. Mm. The 10,000 hours that Malcolm Gladwell talks about in five years of apprenticeship are hugely telescoped. If you join a franchise system, it's already worked out some of the trial and errors in the system. And you also have the ability to be able to mass together ad weights and, and purchasing power of supply. So, for example, if you're a Dunkin' Donut shop that does a million dollars a year in sales and you pay 4% by contract, that's $40,000. But when you combine all of the weight of all of the stores, you're talking about several hundred million dollars 
worth of annual advertising behind the brand mm. for your $40,000 investment. When we bought the Mr. Donut Shop chain, my uncle who started, ultimately bought them in 1990, began to convert them. Our purchasing system was so refined through a cooperative buying system, taking out all of the friction costs in the middle. The average Mr. Donut franchisee that converted to Dunkin' rebadged the store, immediately saved 10% of his cost of goods sold for his day by just joining our purchasing system. Mm. So there are immense benefits in well-run franchise systems for both the franchisor and the franchisee. There are 750,000 franchise businessmen around the country today uh, enjoying this kind of system. Yeah, and that, that sort of dovetails nicely right into something I wanted to ask about next, and that's uh, Duncan's history with regard to innovation and, and continual testing and then reiterating. That's a mindset that seems to have served the company during your time at the helm pretty pretty well, wouldn't you say? It continues on to this day. They're very adaptable. But, you know, basically, as I enumerated before, the customer is constantly changing, competition is constantly changing, and technology is constantly changing. And if you don't change along with it and make new offers to the consumer to satisfy and meet their needs, because that's the ultimate purpose in business, is to provide something that doesn't exist or better than anyone else in the marketplace. That's your reason for being. If you don't keep adjusting and are adaptable, you know, you basically will fail. And that was part of our mindset. We basically, we would, we would innovate constantly, some of which wouldn't work. We were planning uh, saplings for future growth. And then we would test very, very carefully products, design, mm. packaging, every which way, every which element. Today, uh, consumers have added to their dimension. They not only want great products, they're also concerned about the environment and about social issues and about governance. And they're willing to, to shop their dollars, their, their dollars in the, in the marketplace, according to companies that are responsive to those needs. So you pay attention to what the customer wants and the competition's doing and the technology. We're now in the third era of the food service industry, started in operations. Those that did that well then grafted on first-rate consumer goods packaging, survived and thrived. And now it's not only those that keep good operations, good consumer package, good marketing, but now I've added on technology and understand the importance of an investment in digitization in a digital world are the ones that are going to capture the day in the future. It never changes. It's a constant full court press. You never stop. Mm. Is there anything I haven't asked about with regard to the book, Bob, that you would like to expound upon or add to the conversation before I move on to some other questions? The book really is uh, is a buffet of ideas. Uh, mm. It, it, it uh, applies to all, all kinds of people, from the entrepreneur in terms of apprenticeship and franchising to people who want to scale a bigger business uh, who are starting, who may be in their adolescent stage, I think. The work about our planning and how we go about it and also how we recruit, retain, and motivate an organization and useful tools. Uh, and I think for larger companies that are publicly owned, the way we organized our board is useful. But the one thing that I, I would highlight are people in, in, in families or in communities. We all, and I have found that in my case, you know, I moved from one stage to another. I'm now, in my, now contemplating the fourth act of my life. And I have used the same planning process and tools and language of what is my purpose, what do I want to be, what do I want to have, and what are the four or five levers I can pull in order to achieve that and bridge scarce resources to the achievement of those things. And, and I would offer that to anyone in life. It, so it goes way beyond business. And so that would be one point I'd like to make. Mm. 
Well, there's someone who is writing a book himself that's fairly meta. It's a book about reading books, about why it's so important to do it intentionally and consistently and and how to make the most of of what you learn. I'd be curious to know uh, if you could give us a bit of insight into your history with, with reading and books. You mentioned a couple that have impacted you earlier. Why is reading consistently and intentionally important to you? It it allows me to be introspective and learn from others and hopefully bridge some of the errors that very few of us are gifted. I'm certainly not one who can step across the river from stone to stone without falling in. (laughs) And as I said, I find that whether it's a seminar I attend or a book that I read, it it basically uh, something like two or three real nuggets of issues that I'm wrestling with at the moment come to the fore. Uh, For example... Uh, a book I just read recently by by an author by, who's unfortunately just passed away too early in age, Clay Christensen mm. from Harvard Business School, basically wrote, How Will I Measure My Life? And I found it to be an awe-inspiring book, gave me new language and new insights. And I continually learn from authors all the time. And so it's a continuing gift for me and to keep growing. And I think if there was a fountain of youth, I, my guess would be along with Keeping your body active is keeping your mind active, and mm. reading is a great way to do that. But it keeps you growing, it keeps you thinking, keeps you exposed to the best ideas and the best minds in the world. And I find that I constantly have two or three books going all the time. And I, another book I just I just read by a friend of mine, Rosabeth Moss Canner. She wrote How to Think Outside the Building, mm. and it got me to think about the next stage of my career. If you got gas in the tank, how can you take advantage of your Rolodex and your capabilities and what you know in order to make societies better. And mm. and it got me to thinking about how I could dust off an old idea and reuse it in today's world that may be useful. And that, that came from a book. I, I just find, for me in my life, it's just been absolutely essential. God sent it. It's been a gift, a huge gift. Even after all you've experienced, you still have more to learn? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> <laughs> I wish it weren't so, but I'm still being baked. I <laughs> love it. Well, finally, I'll ask, uh, Bob, as you look ahead to 2021 and beyond, what, what's ahead for you and your team, if you have one? What are you excited about and able to, to share and talk about? In 1968, when I was about to become a chairman of the International Franchise Association, in addition to my role as CEO of Duncan. We had the same kind of problems uh, with racial injustice that had come to the fore and people taking to the streets trying to achieve more racial justice. My idea at the time in 1968 was to create a complementary set of a bunch of uh, franchise businesses that could go into underserved neighborhoods where franchisees would be uh, people from the, the community people of color generally and, and and employ people from within the community and serve goods and services in what were once thriving retail areas. So it could be a, a Dunkin' along with a McDonald's with a 7-Eleven, a hardware store, mm. IGA, all, all of these businesses take into consideration dealerships of franchisees. And you could set up 10, 20 in a group with in an enterprise zone with uh, advantageous conditions or concessions by communities for taxes and other things in order to be able to to provide economic well-being into a community to help. That's something I know something about, something I've done, and that's an idea for the future. And I, if I have gas in the tank, that would be something I'd address my attention to in the next phase, in the next act of my my life. Incredible, love to hear that. Well, the book, again, is called Around the Corner to Around the World, A Dozen Lessons I Learned Running Dunkin' Donuts. His name is Robert Rosenberg, or to his friends, 
of which I am now one, apparently. Bob, Bob, thank you so much for being a part of the Read to Lead podcast. I was thrilled to, to have you here. Appreciate it. My pleasure, Jim. You will not be disappointed if you choose to pick up this book from Bob Rosenberg. It comes in, by the way, at just under 200 pages. So as business books go, it's tight and makes for, as I said at the top of the show, a delightful read. To dive more into the episode and the other resources and links that Bob and I talked about, you can visit the show notes page for this episode, readtoleadpodcast.com slash 350 for episode 350. You'll also find a link there to pre-order my upcoming book called Read to Lead, The Simple Habit That Expands Your Influence and Boosts Your Career. Or go to readtoleadpodcast.com slash book or amazon.com and search Read to Lead. I hope you'll consider pre-ordering it today. Again, it comes out August 31st. I mentioned that endorsement of the book from Brian Tracy at the beginning of the show. He's our guest next week and is our final episode of 2020. I hope you'll be here. Well, that does it for this week. Until next time, as always, remember, leaders read and readers lead. credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.